Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with all of you this morning. Um, as many of you know, for the last several months, I've been spending a lot of time substitute teaching. Uh, well, today, I get to take a stab at substitute preaching. And uh, as long as you guys are a more hospitable, captive audience than seventh graders, I think we'll get along great. So, um, If you were here during the Sunday school hour, I gave a little presentation on um, some missions work that I'm going to be doing in Thailand. I'm going to be serving at a campus ministry in Bangkok, Thailand, with an organization called Global Scope. Um, if you missed that, uh, I would be glad to talk with you more after the service if you'd like more information. I've also got some flyers in the back uh, that you can take home if you'd like to. Um, but anyway, that's what I'm going to be doing, um, and I'd certainly appreciate your prayers as I uh, prepare for that and as I leave to, uh, to move to, t to Thailand in August. So today, though, um, as I mentioned, going to be preaching. Um, what's that, Dad? I am, yep. You want to just use this one? Test, 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 test. Is that, is that working? All right, good. Um, so, Jay asked me a few weeks back, um, we'd been talking about uh, me giving a presentation about the, the missions work I'll be doing at some point, um, and he said, well, you could do it on May 5th, and then you could also preach the sermon because I'm going to be out of town. And I said, all right, well, sure, I'd love to, Jay. Um, and he said, and if you don't mind, I'm also going to give you uh, the topic because we'll be in the middle of a series then, and it would just make sense for us to continue with that same series. I said, fine, no problem. What are, we, what are we working with here? And he said, well, the series is going to be called God is Greater Than, um, and each week will just be a different, different topic. Uh, and, and so he said, I, I'm not exactly sure what the topic will be for that particular week, but he listed off a few possibilities, uh, and I, you know, I said, no problem, those sound good, I'm sure I can handle it, we'll, we'll be fine. Um, so, because the topics he listed, you know, sounded kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of softball topics, you know, things that I could address with, without too much controversy or confusion. Um, but then, a couple days later, he texts me and says, actually, James, I was wrong. The topic for that week is going to be God is greater than my guilt and shame. <laughs> and I said, dadgummit, Jay. Uh, that's what I said in my head. I texted back and said, sure, Jay, that'll be great. I'd be glad to. Um, but so that's the, that's the topic that we're going to address today. God is greater than my guilt and shame. And it's certainly a difficult topic it's, uh, it's a very personal topic, but it's, it's, uh, it's a very important topic. And I think when we look at what God says about guilt and shame in Scripture, uh, it can also be, for us, a very exciting topic. So, to address this today, we're going to look at three questions. And those questions are going to be, first, what are guilt and shame? Secondly, how does God deal with guilt and shame? And then thirdly, how should we deal with our guilt and shame? Um, now, before we dive into those, I, I just want to make a quick aside here and say, like most of you, um, I have dealt with, with both of these two things at certain points in my life. Um, and I remember, you know, sometimes when I've struggled with sin, 
I've tried to kind of stew in my guilt that I feel over that sin, hoping that that will kind of make me change my behavior. Um, And I know that some of you have probably attempted something similar. And what I found, and maybe what you found also, is that that doesn't work particularly well. Um, You know, I've I've heard one of my my pastors in college used to to say that guilt is a terrible long-term motivator. But it is good to get our attention. Guilt is a great way uh, for us to realize that we're doing something we shouldn't be doing. It's something that God uses to get our attention and direct us, um, you know, to, to something better. Um, so I think when we think about guilt and we think about shame, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily all bad, um, but it is something that we certainly don't want to hang on to. We want to deal with it once we run into it, and we want to deal with the underlying causes of it. So let's look at a definition for guilt. That'll put that on the board here. Um, so the first definition, we're going to have two definitions for guilt. The first is the fact of being responsible for the commission of an offense or moral culpability. So basically, it's the fact that we have done something wrong. If we have committed a sin, committed uh, some sort of offense, we have guilt. And often this objective sort of guilt uh, is what the Bible is referring to when we see that word uh, in the scripture. It's talking about our state of being. We are in guilt because we have sinned. But there's also a second definition, uh, the painful emotion experienced when one believes one's actions or thoughts have violated a moral or personal standard. I think when we speak about guilt in our day-to-day lives, that's probably more what we discuss more often. It's, it's our feeling, a painful emotion resulting from doing something bad. Um, so very often those two are, are tied together pretty closely, but I, I, we're going to come back to that distinction uh, in a little bit. So I wanted to put both of those up on the board. Now for shame, um, the definition that I found for shame is a painful emotion caused by the belief that one is or is perceived to be inferior or unworthy because of one's actions, thoughts, circumstances, or experiences. So that sounds pretty similar to uh, the second definition that we had for guilt. Um, They are very similar. I think if we wanted to make a distinction between the two, we could say that guilt is maybe feeling badly about something we've done, uh, whereas shame is maybe feeling badly about who we are. Uh, So an example would be, I feel guilt because I lied, but I might feel shame if I am a liar. Um, so that, I think, I think we, if we want to parse that definition, that maybe is, is the difference that we, can, that we can look at there. So um, that's our definitions. Let's look at the second question. How does God deal with guilt and shame? Now, to address this, we're going to look at three examples from the Bible. We're going to look at David, Moses, and Peter. Um, and I know... David and Moses are not in chronological order here, so don't let that throw you off. It just worked better with my outline to look at David first. Um, But we're going to look at these three people, uh, look at an instance in their lives when they dealt with guilt and shame, um, when they were dealing with sin and the repercussions of their sin, and then we're going to see how God deals with them as a result of that. So uh, we're going to start in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, Um, Now, I'm going to summarize the first little bit of it here. So David uh, is king of Israel at this point, and he orders his advisors to take a census of his army 
He wants to know how many fighting men he has in Israel. Now, this, this sounds like something that, uh, you know, might be pretty commonplace, might be a, a pretty normal uh, thing for a king to do. But immediately, his top military advisor tells him that this is something he shouldn't do, that this is evil, that this is something that will be uh, against God. But David uh, decides to do it anyway, and so he orders a census of the army, and, and his advisors go out and figure out uh, how many fighting men there are in Israel. And almost immediately after that is completed, David also realizes that he has done something wrong. He immediately recognizes his own guilt. Now, it's not immediately clear to us why taking the census was wrong. Um, and and in, in fact, biblical scholars, the ones that I, you know, Googled to help me with this particular passage, uh, don't really know for sure either why this was such a big deal. Um, but I think most of them think uh, it's something to do with the fact uh, that David has the wrong attitude here. He has the wrong motivation uh, because Israel's real protector was not its military might, but God. Um, and so when David decides to count his fighting men, he's really seeming to rely more on his own strength uh, than God's strength for Israel's protection. So um, that's probably, a lot of people think that's, that's what the big deal is here. So let's look at First uh, Chronicles 21, starting in verse 9. This is right after... David realizes that he's committed this this terrible mistake. Uh, The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So this is in response to David uh, ordering the census of of his army. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies, with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing uh, floor of Arana, the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. So the first time I read that, my first thought was, wow, that escalated quickly. Um, that seems to be a pretty extreme punishment that, uh, that God deals out here for, for David's offense. Um, and you know, a lot of things in the Old Testament seem very, uh, very harsh to us. A lot of things in the Old Testament are, are, are pretty extreme. Um, but on one level, this should make sense to us. God's reaction here should make sense to us because it's, it's often, in a way, how our own world operates. When we commit some sort of offense, uh, we can expect 
very often some sort of punishment, right? So when we're young, um, if we break some sort of rule in the house, our parents may administer a punishment. When we're older, if we break some sort of rule in society, society may issue some sort of punishment. Um, so, you know, it's while we may not understand exactly why this particular offense was so egregious, we can see the logic besides David having to undergo some sort of punishment. So, uh, the first reaction, the first way that God deals with guilt and shame uh, is punishment. Now, I know that's not particularly uplifting, but stick with me, all right? Um, Let's go on and look at Moses. So, we're going to be looking at Moses in Numbers 20, um, and so when we, when we find Moses in Numbers 20, this is towards the end of the 40 years that Moses spends in the desert with the Israelites. So after Moses leads, leads the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, they go to the edge of the promised land, and they're about to enter the promised land uh, when the Israelites rebel um, against Moses' leadership and the Lord's direction uh, and, and, and don't trust in the Lord to, to give them the land. So because of that, they have to wander in the desert for 40 years um, and they've kind of reached the end of that time period. They're still in the desert, but very soon they're going to have another opportunity to go into the promised land. And however, as they're still waiting, they come, they find themselves in a place with no water. Uh, and as was their habit, they quickly begin complaining uh, against Moses and, and, you know, begin to ask why he didn't just leave them in Egypt and, and stuff like that. So they're complaining. Uh, and Moses goes to inquire of the Lord to ask for water. Um, and so the Lord uh, tells Moses, take your staff, uh, you and Aaron go to a rock, speak to the rock, and then water will flow out of the rock. So God gives Moses some very clear directions on what he wants him to do um, to to provide water for the Israelites. So we're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 20, verse 9 here. So this is right after God has given Moses those instructions. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But Moses said, uh, sorry, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring them, uh, you will not bring this community into the land I will give them. All right, so what did Moses do wrong? Well, for one thing, he disobeyed the Lord's, um, the Lord's orders, his instructions. Um, but I think the deeper issue here is that Moses' actions uh, betray a lack of humility, a sense of, of pride, um, because you know, he's obviously frustrated uh, with the Israelites, and he says, should we bring water out of this rock for you? Well, You know, I don't know if Moses is talking about by we if he means himself and Aaron or if he means himself and God, Um, but no matter what, it was God that was bringing uh, the water out of the rock, and he doesn't give God full credit for for that, Um, and then on top of that disobeys him. So God is understandably upset at having been disobeyed, um, and he basically gives Moses early retirement. 
um, he basically, you know, fires him, for lack of a better word. Um, and, you know, I don't know, it, that may have been somewhat of a relief to Moses after having to deal with all the complaining and, and you know, having to lead these people around the desert for, for many years. But I'm sure there was also a lot of guilt and shame associated with that because he's put up with these people in the desert for 40 years in hopes of finally getting to go into the promised land. And now when they're right on the cusp of that happening, he's not going to be the one to lead them into that promised land. Um, So, once again, this mirrors how our own world often operates. Um, If we make a big mistake uh, at work, it's possible that we also might, um, you know, be given an early retirement. If we make a big mistake, uh, we also might get fired. So God deals with Moses in a way here uh, that, you know, we can recognize in our own um, contemporary world. Now, I know both of those are kind of downers, um, but I want to I make a couple points before we go on to, to Peter. First, yes, God does deal with David and Moses rather severely here, I think it's fair to say. Um, But we also know that even though David and Moses made these big mistakes, and and these weren't the only uh, mistakes that they made either, of course, you know, David had some some humdingers um, in other parts of his life as well, but God still cared about David and Moses and still loved David and Moses um, and still honored David and Moses. You know, David, uh, as we've heard, uh, is still referred to in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And Moses appears with Jesus uh, at the transfiguration a couple thousand years later. So it's not like God uh, completely casts David and Moses aside um, after, after they have to suffer these, these pretty severe consequences. So let's keep that in mind as we go to our third example, uh, the Apostle Peter. So we're going to look at two different scriptures for Peter. We're going to start in Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 54. And this is right after Jesus has been arrested uh, and he has been taken uh, to the high priest's house. So uh, uh, Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some uh, some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow is with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So, Peter, very clearly in this situation, has objective guilt. He has the guilt, the, the first definition of guilt that we talked about here. He has committed an offense. He is, he is uh, responsible for a wrong here. 
Uh, he's disowned his Lord. He's, he's disowned his, his teacher. Um, and he certainly also has subjective guilt and shame. He feels those painful emotions that we talked about, as we see by the fact that he, that he immediately um, begins weeping bitterly. And, and I can't imagine uh, the internal dialogue that Peter must be having with himself right at this time, right? You know, he's just disowned Jesus, uh, and he's, you know, probably thinking to himself, what have I done? I'm a coward. I'm a traitor. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've disowned the person that's most important to me. And then can you imagine the first time Jesus appears to the disciples after, he, after he's resurrected? You know, it says all the disciples were overjoyed, and I'm sure all of them were, including Peter, maybe even especially Peter. But I'm sure there was also still some guilt and some shame that he was dealing with from, from his denials. So we move on to John chapter 21, uh, and this is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Uh, this is another meeting, not the first meeting, but a subsequent meeting uh, that Jesus has with his disciples after his resurrection. So they're um, fishing, and then Jesus appears on the beach, and they join him for breakfast. And this is John 21, um, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Uh, sorry. Yeah, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So Jesus reinstates Peter. For every time that he denied him, Jesus allows Peter to affirm his love for him. Now, let's think back to our other two examples. How does, how does this compare with what David and Moses uh, dealt with? God deals with Peter's guilt and shame much differently uh, than Moses and much differently than David because the whole equation has changed. Now Jesus is in the picture. Peter is not punished like David was because Jesus has already taken his punishment. Peter is not sent into early retirement like Moses was because Jesus has redeemed him and reinstated him. He can continue his service to the Lord without shame, not because of who he is, but because of who Jesus is and because of who he is in Jesus. God put Peter's punishment on Jesus and recommissioned him, and he does the same thing for us. So that leads us to our last question. How should we deal with our own guilt and shame? So if we're talking about guilt, the first definition, our objective guilt, we of course have to repent. We have to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, accept the sacrifice that he made for us. That wipes out our objective guilt. 
that takes away the responsibility and the punishment for our sins from us. But when we're talking about the, the painful feelings of guilt and shame, oftentimes, even though we've repented and even after we know we've been forgiven, sometimes those feelings remain. Sometimes we struggle with them long after we've actually repented and, and taken care of those, uh, those sins by repenting. So let's think back, though, on David, Moses, and Peter. What, what was their mistake? What did they all have in common? Well, it may be more than one thing, but, but I noticed that all of their sins, all of their mistakes that we looked at, uh, seem to have the common denominator of not giving God credit for something. So David wasn't giving God credit for being Israel's true protector and was instead putting his faith in his own military forces. Moses was not giving God credit for providing for the Israelites. He said, shall we bring water out of this rock? And he, he disobeyed him. He wasn't giving God credit for being the one uh, to look after the Israelites. And then Peter did not give Jesus credit for being his rabbi, his teacher, and his Lord. He acted like he never knew him. You know, when we sin, uh, when we are dealing with guilt and with the, the guilt and the shame that, that comes from having sinned, uh, you know, there may be some things that we need to do. We may need to seek forgiveness from somebody, um, from another person. We may need to get help in, in changing the way we live our lives somehow. Uh, and we, there may be something we need to do to try to right the wrong. Uh, but in the end, the only way our sins are actually taken away is by repenting before God. And when we repent and when we are forgiven by God, but still hold on to those feelings of guilt and shame, we're making the same mistake that David, Moses, and Peter made. We're not giving God credit for what he's done in our own lives. When we refuse to forgive ourselves, we're acting like we are a higher judge than God. Now, I know even when we know this, it can be difficult to truly let go of, of, of those painful feelings of guilt and those painful feelings of shame. But God wants us to let go of them, not only because he's taken care of our guilt, and he's taken care of our shame, but also because he's got other stuff for us to do. What does he say to Peter? He says, follow me. We can't follow very effectively when we're weighed down by our guilt and our shame, when we're wallowing in our guilt and our shame. When we, when we hang on to that, we may miss what God is leading us towards. After I graduated college, um, I got to spend a year in Germany as an exchange student. Um, and I got to take a couple German language courses while I was, while I was there. And I really got along well with one of my German teachers. His name was Eggert. If that's not a German name, I don't know what is. Eggert. Um, and Eggert was a retired journalist. Um, so we kind of had some interests in common. And so we would, you know, in addition to, to class time, we would chat about, about different topics. And he had a lot of cool stories from his career as a journalist. Uh, so we really got on, uh, got, got along really well. So I had his class in the first semester that I was over there. Um, and then the second semester, I, I didn't have his class anymore, so I really didn't see him quite as much. Uh, and so right before I was about to come back to the U.S., I sent him an email 
asking if he would like to get together for coffee or something like that so we could maybe spend 45 minutes to an hour together uh, to catch up a little bit before I, before I left the country. Well, he replied and countered my suggestion uh, with saying maybe we should go on a five-hour hike, which is also a very German thing to suggest. Um, so we did, and it ended up being more like six hours because we went on the hike and then of course, we're famished after that, and so had to stop somewhere and get something to eat. Um, but as you might, might imagine, oh, that's a, a picture of us, by the way. That's me, and, and that one on the, on the right there is Eggert, um, in case you couldn't tell. But um, So that's kind of at the top of our, our hike. But we got to cover a lot of ground uh, in our discussions over those six hours. Um, and, you know, we, we covered so many things, and then we finally got at the very end to God somehow. I don't remember quite how we got there, but we started talking about God. Now, I knew Eggert was not um, really involved in church. Uh, he wasn't really, um, really involved in any organized religion, to my knowledge, and so I kind of expected him uh, to say that he maybe didn't even believe in God, uh, but that's not what he said. He said that it makes sense to him that there would have to be a creator, that there would have to be some sort of supernatural being or a god uh, for the world to exist. He really didn't think that it was really even possible for there to be an earth like, like we have here without some sort of god to create it. And, and so I, I, you know, I was kind of surprised by this, and, and I asked him, so, so you know, what does that mean in your own life? How do you, how do you deal with that? Uh, what, is that, what does that mean for you? And he basically just said that although he, he thinks that there probably is a God, he just said the question really doesn't interest him that much. It doesn't really affect the way he lives his day-to-day -day life. Now, I don't know exactly in Eggert's case why that is, um, but, you know, that is, I think, that should be the ultimate question. If, if we believe there's a God, uh, then that should influence every other aspect of our lives. And so I, I wonder why Eggert doesn't kind of take that assumption to the next logical step. Um, and I think it may be because when we really think about the fact that God exists, we realize that we are not the ultimate authority over our own lives. If God exists, and if I really start to engage with that idea, if I start to um, you know, reach out to that God, I may find that I'm not meeting his standards for my life. Because if, if there's a God, then he can certainly, if I'm his creation, he certainly is the one that gets to decide uh, how, I should, how I should live. And, and if I admit that, if I really engage with that, I may find that I'm not doing it. I may be guilty of not meeting his standard. And I think that whole idea, um, you know, may keep a lot of people from really thinking through uh, the existence of God and, and its implications. But what I wish Eggert and, and many other people that think that way could understand is that, yes, we aren't the ultimate authority over our own lives. And, yes, it is true that we, we don't meet God's standards. Uh, and it is true that we have guilt because of that. But when we engage with God, we find that he has made a way to forgive our mistakes and take away the painful emotions that come with them. And I think even, even if we don't acknowledge the existence of God, 
uh, we could still figure out that we have guilt. We would still feel guilt and shame. And really the only way to, to deal with those emotions, to deal with that state of being, is through God. And the most exciting part is this. When, when we're on God's team, he's got better and more important things for us to do than to hang on to our guilt and to hang on to our shame, to wallow in, in those feelings. Just like Peter, he's ready to take them away, far, far away, and to lead us on to our next mission, to our next adventure, to the next thing he has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way through Jesus to, to not only forgive us of our sins, but to take away the, the eternal consequences, the punishment of those sins, Lord. God, we know that when we make mistakes, you know, we may feel guilt, we may feel shame, we may, uh, we may have some consequences because of that. But we know, Lord, that, that you have made a way to wipe it all out to wipe it all out, and to lead us to bigger and better things, Lord. And I, Lord, I just pray now that, you know, I'm sure there are people here um, that have, you know, spent a lot of time wrestling with guilt, a lot of time wrestling with shame. And I'm sure we all have to some extent. And Lord, I just pray that you would be close to all of us as you show us that that's not what you have for us. That, you know, you... Certainly, you, you came to save us so that we could spend eternity with you, and Lord, we're, we're so thankful for that. But you also have stuff for us to do now. You also have a, a life for us to live now uh, that is focused on you, not on our own past and not on our own mistakes. So I thank you for that, Lord. I, I, I just praise you, and I ask that you'll be close to all of us as we work that out in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen.